The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I believe I have found a wonderful writer to help us do that. Her name is Janice Ray, and she is the author of a wonderful book called The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. She describes herself as a writer, a naturalist, an activist. She's a seed saver, seed exchanger, and seed banker. She's also an award-winning writer of both poetry and nonfiction, and she's even received an award from the Southern Environmental Law Center for Outstanding Writing. So she comes with a wonderful history of writing and gardening for 25 years. Welcome, Janice. Hey, thank you, Melinda. Good to be here. Well, it's great to speak with you, and it was even better to read your book and become totally enveloped in all of the stories that you tell. And so I I would like to actually start with a little bit about your history. You seem naturally drawn to the natural world, and I wonder if that love of nature didn't start on your grandparents' farm. That's probably true. I've been asked this a lot because I write... In my, my very first book was a memoir of growing up on a junkyard in southern Georgia, but the chapters are they alternate between chapters of personal history and chapters of natural history about the decline of longleaf pine. And I think being around so many machines and failed automobiles growing up, I I think I saw the wild places even in the junkyard, you know, the backside, the place where pitcher plants grew. So perhaps it was the bounty and abundance at my grandparents' farm, and perhaps it was just counterpoint to the junkyard. Mm-hmm. Well, in the preface to your book, you speak about hope, and that seems to be a common theme that runs through a lot of conversations and books these days, how we need to have hope, we must have hope in the face of many reasons to feel hopeless. And then you talk about the importance of having love and the sense of love for nature and life and future generations leading us to activism and how we really need all positive contributions. We don't need people to drop out right now and that you really do see people coming together like at no other time, at least in our lifetimes, coming together around agriculture and trying to reclaim our food system. Well, I started as a nature writer, you know, 15 years ago, and traveled a lot to college campuses. The questions young people were asking then were, can we bring back the red wolf, or can we, bring, can we save the Florida panther? Can we connect the Yukon to Yellowstone? And, you know, over time, those questions changed, and what was lighting fires in young people's eyes were the questions of can we de-industrialize our own cafeteria? Can we start a farmer's market on campus? Can we start a community garden? And 
I think there are many reasons for this, but it's it's just that in, in all the ways that we live revolutionary lives or lives of resistance, this is one way that we can make a huge difference. It's one part of our lives we're totally in control of how we feed ourselves. Now, you may have to work harder to not let big business feed you, but we're totally in control of it. And I think it was that. Also, food is such a pleasurable part of our lives that it's, you know, it's it's just much easier to be a food activist than it is to chain yourself to, uh, you know, old growth trees that are as the bull, as the bulldozer is approaching. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where we are. You speak about the loss of seeds, and in fact, in one of your chapters, you talk about how the American food system is broken, and you list several difficult issues for us to get our heads around, like our food is going extinct, our food supply is being stolen from us, it's being bought out from under us, and the loss of seeds and biodiversity is something that certainly keeps me awake at night, and just the fact that you know, I love the way you say, I'm not going to ever call chemical agriculture conventional. It is indeed chemical agriculture, and it's leading to the ruin, really, of so many species. And yet you still have hope and call us to fight to bring that back. But I wonder, with regard to the ownership of seeds, are we far gone? You know, are we so lost that we can't bring our, our seeds back? Is the genie out of the bottle never never to return? I try to never think that we you know <laughs> that we're that far gone. It may be that we are, but I feel Melinda that in huge part my job is to not belabor the hopeless stories or our pessimism. You know, to be kind of a, a glass half full kind of person. And you, you spoke of this earlier. I think about it a lot. I've been asked just hundreds of times, am I hopeful? Do I have hope? How do I have hope? And it really hit me. What you were saying just hit me in a flash where I realized that we to do what's necessary and just and right and useful does not require hope. What is required is is love, simply love and how can we how can we recognize love when we feel it or we see it? How can we increase our capacity to love? And those are the questions that I've really been getting at because I think I think that the paralysis of hopelessness is a huge excuse. It's a huge wall to hide behind and that it's it's much better to to be thinking about what I love and how I can protect the things I love. How can what I do today uphold the the magnificence, the magnanimity of this great experiment that we call life? And so I try not to get too bogged down in the bad stories. And not to belabor this, but I think that you know, on on some level, most of us suffer some symptoms of PTSD, um, or even not even post, but maybe present traumatic stress, because so much of our news is is so negative and and reflective of violence. And yet, at my core, I believe that 
all humans are born good. I think we're born into tragic, violent, dark, terrible circumstances sometimes, but I could never, I could not go on in life if I didn't think that babies are born good. Mm-hmm. And by good, I mean cooperative, loving, joyful, willing to help, generous, and so on. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on that, and I think that I should probably confess to our listeners and to you that the way I read books generally is I start from the back. And what I found so joyful about your book was that it was so easy to bounce around in, and one chapter led to another, and then I thought, well, no, maybe I better go back and start at the beginning. So I want to bring our listeners to the back of the book for a moment, because what I love about this book is that you provide a wonderful list of resources that you call broadcasters, and then you also have a great section on what each of us can do, and then you also have a great list of farmers' rights. And I think that those are worth repeating and visiting often. And the one piece of farmers' right that I want to bring out is that farmers have a right to grow what we choose in the manner we choose without being subjected to chemical overspray, pollution residue, coal ash, and genetic drift. That's a tough one. I do believe that farmers have that right, but through our legal system, I don't see that farmers' rights are being protected, especially when it comes to chemical overspray and these pollutants that are getting onto their land, whether we're talking about chemical pollutants or genetic drift or pollen drift. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Let me try. I guess all I can say is let's hold it out as a vision that we could live in a world where all farmers have have that right, that we're we're not subjected to the choices of other people as we try to educate those people and change the policies that will create a healthier, happier, more meaningful, less stressful world for all of us. So let's just hold it out as a banner. Mm -hmm. Well, I think reading those lists of farmers' rights, if nothing else, they plant seeds of what we can all work for collectively. So to have, yeah. the, you know, collective conscious and action steps, I think, are very helpful. And along those same lines, you also have a list of what we as eaters can do. And I think that it's important for those of us who consume food, who don't grow it ourselves, to work with those who do so that we have strength in numbers, this idea of solidarity. And one of the things that you put down, well, you have you have great ideas on this list, and I commend all of them, eat real food, learn to cook it, make, I love this, make a trip to the supermarket as a strange and intolerable experience. I can't tell you enough about my own shift in thinking about supermarkets like that. But also, you have a mention here of nourishing pets and farm animals with non-GM feed. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the dilemma that I face when I talk to farmers about this and they say, Well, you know, I'd like to, but either I can't find non-GMO feed or it's too expensive. It is a huge problem that, you know, we have to do something with all this number two corn, this subsidized corn that's coming out of the Midwest, and and a, a lot of it gets fed to livestock across the country, to our animals. And not just livestock, also, you know, household pets. 
in many areas of the country, it is difficult, if not impossible, to find organic feed or to find any, you know, non-GMO sources. But if you think hard enough, for example, corn is genetically modified, but oats are not. So we often will feed our, our livestock chemical oats because that's what's available, but not GMO corn. So it, it's just going to take a little bit of research. And, and also I will say, too, that we try to work with organic farmers that we know who are growing feed that we can use. And then most of our animals are getting fed pasture. So I guess we should start with that point, that the, the animals who eat grass, which is all of them, should be eating grass and are, but we do supplement chickens and also our hogs a little bit with grains. And just, I think, again, it's the the basic point, Melinda, is planting the knowledge in people that we, we need to be concerned about what genetic modification is doing to our livestock. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Janice Ray. She is the author of The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food, and she's also a writer of several books, an award-winning writer, a naturalist and activist, a seed saver, seed exchanger, and seed banker. I want to ask you, Janice, a little bit more about some of the genetic engineering and some of the farmers and researchers that you've spoken with. And you made a visit to the the Mafka meeting, and this is the big meeting that happens in Maine with organic growers. And you talk about, I believe it was there that you met a wheat geneticist or a wheat farmer from Washington, and he described his work in not going down the path of promoting herbicide-resistant wheat. Can you tell me a little bit about that meeting and why he made such an impact on you? Well, he made such an impact because so many plant breeders and extension agents and plant researchers in this country are basically being forced to go the the chemical route because that's where the funding is coming from. It didn't make it in the book, but I, I spoke to a plant researcher who works for Monsanto who was contracted or I can't say contracted because her pay comes from the government, but she is doing genetic research because she can sell those seeds and that information produced to big companies, which in turn funds more research. Hmm. And if you go back and look at the list of what to do, what you can do, there's way down the list is, you know, work as an activist to retrain extension agents and plant breeders so that we're breeding not for monocultural industrial agriculture, but for more where we're going, which is, you know, the small, diversified, organic yeoman farm. So this man, what I remember about him was that Jones, Stephen Jones, is just you know, everywhere you can find these people who are willing to buck the system. And he wasn't bucking it terribly. It was just that he was being honest. At the end of his presentation, there was a slide at the end of his 
his PowerPoint that said, I have received no research funds from any chemical, any multinational, no chemical producer. And I thought, oh, my God, how amazing is that? How possible is that? Because I believe his funding at his institution was being threatened. Is that right? I'll have to go back you know what? to that. I don't remember the entire story, and I think so. And I also think that now he's actually moved from the university to um, a kind of center for, let's see, he now directs Northwestern Washington Research and Extension Center. So, yeah, I think he was actually moved off the campus he was on at Washington State. Yeah, well, here, I found it in in the chapter. The Washington Wheat Commission basically threatened to end its $1.66 million support for Jones's projects, mainly winter wheat development, and he came under that pressure because he refused to introduce herbicide-resistant wheat, which is something that consumers repeatedly say we don't want. So these are the people, Melinda, who who totally thrill me and inspire me mm-hmm. and and fill me with love because these are the people who don't just buy the status quo. They don't just do what's easy. Even if it's hard, they do what's right. They try to do what's right. And these people are everywhere. The news doesn't talk so much about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the book is called The Seed Underground. And I'm sorry to call all these gorgeous seed savers and gardeners and people who shop at farmer's markets, which the number now is in the millions and millions, and I'm sorry to call those people, you know, part of the underground or revolutionaries. And yet, that's exactly what we are. You know, very slowly, like mycelia, we are changing. We are in the middle of a food revolution. We are changing the face of food in this country. And, you know, all of us are part of it. Mm-hmm. Stephen Jones is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for those of us who are witnessing this revolution as well as being bombarded with propaganda for the chemical system to step back and really see what's going on and understand, as you point out, in fact, I think this is what Stephen Jones even says, he's quoted in this chapter, as recognizing that biotechnology is all about ownership and profiting from ownership. It's not about feeding the world and it's not about solving world hunger, even though that's what certainly dietitians like myself are being told by the industry. It's all about ownership and profit. And the sooner we recognize that, hopefully the less willing we will be to buy into it. Yeah, very well said, and thank you for saying it. Exactly. It's about ownership. And, and you know, if we, the PI, personally believe seeds belong to the commons, like fire, like water, you know, like sunlight falling from the sky, and if we allow seeds to be patented and scooped out from under us, then I think that, you know, we are endangering human civilization in totality. Mm-hmm. We're, we're endangering our food supply. And that's why, that's why part of this movement is called seed sovereignty, and that's that we have ownership over the seeds we grow, which is the food we eat. 
Mm-hmm. You know, every calorie of food, even if it's a calorie of protein, of meat, it's coming from a seed. A seed is the beginning of all of our food. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, too, to make the connection between our food and our health. You know, certainly from a dietitian's perspective, that's what it's all about. And I love that you speak about meeting Jeff Bickart, and you have a page in here in memory of Jeff who passed away so prematurely. But you talk about visiting him in Vermont, and he says that he wants to produce food that is life-protecting and life-saving. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experience with Jeff and some of the lessons that he taught you. So I was in Vermont doing a writing workshop, and I saw at the little general store, this is up in the Northeast Kingdom, a little town called Craftsbury Common, a notice on the bulletin board that just said this person had some bean seeds and so forth, and you come by and get some. You wanted to share. And so I called him up. I was I was taking the long route to writing this book and just happened to be up there. As I traveled doing other things, I would research for this book. And so I called him and got to go visit him. And I had no idea at the time that he had he had like overwintered a cancer and was was in remission and that cancer came back afterwards. But what he was doing was was trying to to have a homestead where he produced what he could for his family. And, you know, we think about gardens being these little summer hobby projects, and then we do a little canning, you know, and it's so cool because we can this and that. But, you know, there are some people who are serious about eating local and growing their own food and not, you know, not letting multinational corporations feed us and taking charge of health. And thank you for being one of those, Melinda. So Jeff was serious about he wanted to grow life-sustaining foods, meaning he wanted to grow beans and grain and not just some greens that are going to, you can put in your smoothie and they're going to, you know, you'll have a few weeks' worth of greens and it's over. I mean, he was serious about growing. And and more and more people are. Jeff represents a, a huge and growing percentage of the population in this country. It's quite amazing. And you brought back quite a few bean seeds from him. Cowpeas mostly. He gave me a collection of cowpeas that he could not grow in northern Vermont that I've been growing here. So so most seeds have a, a pretty hefty viability. You know, you it's easy to determine how many years you can keep a tomato seed in the freezer and it stay viable. You know, tomatoes easily four years and more. Really? Many more. I mean, you know, we found very, very old seeds in dry, cold caves. So, yes, I have some of the cowpeas didn't work, and some I am growing. Cowpeas, or, or we call them field peas, is kind of our the southern equivalent of the northern bean, the baked bean, the cranberry bean. Those things don't grow so well for us here, but we grow this other uh, field pea that does, and we have tremendous diversity. I should mention here, though, that the area of the country with the greatest agrodiversity is uh, the Appalachians, that up these hollers, 
these families would be growing a different bean, you know, like a half runner, cut short, grease back, half runner. And up the next holler would be a runner, a cornfield runner bean. And they name them whatever they name them, but they're but they're all genetically different because they've been adapting to microclimates in these hollers. And so, yeah, we've I've gotten off the subject, but. Well, I can tell you're excited about seeds, and I think what this book is, is a call to action to think about seeds more. And actually, you you start out by describing how we don't really value the seed, and many times it just ends up in the trash, and we don't think enough about the power that lies within that seed, and perhaps that's why we've been so nonchalant or casually letting corporations take over the seeds because we haven't really thought fully enough about what's at stake here and certainly the loss of resiliency when we lose all of these species. But, you know, we just have a few minutes left, Janice, and your book is a rich compilation of stories and interviews that you've had with so many wise people who have been growing food for a long time. And I want to give you a chance to bring forth from this book anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about. Well, I think that you summed it up very well there. I think a seed is a sacred thing. You know, it's it's a natural memory stick. It collects and stores climate data for the next generation and the next. And with the climate chaos that's coming at us, we have... You know, we need to keep as many options for resilience open to us. And I think that's going to require us starting to to plant uh, open pollinated seeds, not hybrid, not genetically modified, learn to save our own seeds and keep them pure, or learn to breed seeds so that we're adapting to our microclimates or extending seasons, increasing productivity. But... um I think that in this country, in the in the good food movement, we've we've come a long way to understand uh, organic. Why to eat organic? Why not to to put chemicals in our bodies? And I think we're understanding local that food grown closer to home is more nutritious. So it's because because it's fresher. And I think the time has come to understand what's happening to seeds that we're losing seeds. And that more of us need to understand what's happening to them and step up to the plate to do something to protect into the future our food supply. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful charge, Janice. And I want to bring forth something that you said in Chapter 33, which is we may have lost many seeds. That's true. But we must protect what's left. We need to stop walking around doing nothing. I love that observation. And you also mentioned what somebody had told you, which is don't become a slave to your animals. And your response was anyone who does not grow their own food will become a slave. So I think those are two pieces of information that we can all think a little bit about, some food for thought. So in closing, Janice, I want to thank you so much for this book and for all of your writing and for really being an inspiration to us. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. And again, we have been speaking with Janice Ray. She is the author of several books, but the one we're talking about today is The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. I highly recommend it. It's impossible to put down. Janice Ray is a writer, naturalist, and activist, seed saver, seed exchanger, seed banker, and I forgot to mention that she lives a simple, sustainable life on a farm in southern Georgia with her husband called Red Earth. So again, Janice, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa.